0: Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Would you please turn with me in your copy of Scripture, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, as we begin working through this sermon series, um, Revelation and Response in Biblical Worship? One of the passages, of Scripture, one of the themes in Scripture that we considered was looking at the Old Testament, particularly the tabernacle and the instruments of worship in the Old Testament. And that's a beautiful set of themes. In fact, it's tremendously important in in terms of the Old Testament narrative. If you look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you have two chapters on creation. Certainly, there are other places in the Old Testament that affirm creation. But then what you discover is that there are dozens of chapters on the form and the liturgy of Old Testament worship with the tabernacle and the instrumentation and the building of that. So it's a tremendously important text of Scripture, but there's a lot to it. And because there's a lot to it, one of the things sometimes that we need to do is find a text of Scripture that lets us note it and then acknowledge what its purpose was and then point us forward to Jesus, which is what we're going to do here with Hebrews Chapter nine. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, uh, to follow along as I read this wonderful chapter. I know it's a lot of verses, but all of it is important. And listen as we let the Lord speak to us through His Word about what it is that we need to see from the Old Testament that points us to Jesus in the New Testament. Hebrews 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Just so you know, uh, the entire theme of chapter 9 is worship. Uh, it's the primary emphasis here in the text. For a tent was prepared, the first section of which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presents. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation, or until the time of the New Order, when God was going to bring about His full plan of redemption and salvation. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, That is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. "...since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only a death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive." Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Our memory verse, verse 24, "...for Christ has entered not in a holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but in the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf." Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now, it's a long reading, long chapter, and, and the book of Hebrews itself is, is a little bit complicated because we live in the 21st century. We don't live in an age and an era where our primary understanding of our Christian experience comes through rituals and sacrifices from the Old Testament, it can be sometimes a little challenging for us to grasp what all is going on, which is part of the reason the writer says we don't have time to deal in detail with all of these elements from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant. So let me offer some, some uh, by way of illustration, something that may help us understand what's going on. I'm indebted to Alistair Begg, a, a preacher that I listened to. Uh, semi-regularly, love his uh, Scottish uh, kind of brogue as he preaches and his, as he teaches, but he's a fantastic expositor of Scripture, and he was going through a series from the book of Hebrews, and he reflected on uh, something that one of his professors had shared. shared that the Bible we can look at as two different acts of one play. So if you have a play, and a play has two acts, you need the first play, first act of the play to make sense of the second act, and you need the second act to make sense of the first. If you watch only the first act, act one, then you're going to be unsure of the conclusion of the story. But if you watch act two, then you're going to come in and kind of be lost because you missed act one. What What's the setup? And so the Old Testament is Act 1, and the New Testament is Act 2 in that kind of illustration. Let me, let me make, it, uh, make it kind of personal. Can you imagine in the Old Testament, a child, a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, ten-year-old going to mom and dad and saying, mom and dad, why do we have to take this perfectly good lamb to, to the temple today or to the tabernacle today to be sacrificed? Why, why are we killing this animal in order for, uh, you know, for, what's the deal with that? What's the command? And of course, the mom and dad would have been able to share, listen, God expects us to bring a sacrifice of offering and, and through that sacrifice, it's our faith and, and God will cleanse and forgive our and so there's a there's a level of understanding that happens in the Old Testament when we see it through the lens of the sacrificial system. Now, why we need that is because when you move forward into the New Testament, if we don't have that framework and that background, much of what takes place in the New Testament will be missed. For example, in uh, the early in the New Testament, you have John the Baptist introducing Jesus. Do you remember what he says? He says, "Behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to 21st century years. If Jesus was going to be introduced today, would that be the way that the prophet or preacher would introduce Jesus? Well, the reason John used that language is because John was drawing on the the sacrificial system of the Old Testament as imagery that would point us to the fact that Jesus came to be our substitute and to be our sacrifice. So one thing I want you to get is that where we're looking at Hebrews 9, and some of it is a little bit foreign to our understanding. Know that the framework of the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, and the law, were designed as a foreshadowing of what it is that God wants us to see about Himself and pointing forward, pointing us forward, to the redemption that God was going to bring through Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm also indebted to Alistair Begg for this statement. He says that in the Old Testament, what we have is Jesus predicted. In the Gospels, we have Jesus revealed. In the Acts, we have Jesus preached. In the Epistles, of which Hebrews is one, we have Jesus explained. And in Revelation, we have Jesus expected. So what we see in this text, this beautiful passage of Scripture is how Jesus is explained through the lens and the framework of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, a part of that comes to our ears and we say, okay, what in the world was God up to? Because isn't the Old Testament full of more than a thousand years of religious history about the Jewish people? And if we read Hebrews 9 correctly, what we discover is all these sacrifices that had to happen Day after day, week after week, and with regard to the Day of Atonement, year after year, are largely meaningless in and of themselves. Why in the world would God expect such sacrifices to be made? I think one thing it can tell us is that God had a perfect plan to bring about redemption until the time of Reformation, verse 10, the time of the new order. Essentially, God had a plan to bring about redemption through His Son, Jesus. That was always His plan. But what it tells us is that God spent several thousand years of human history, in particular with relation to His people, setting up His Son, Jesus, to come. Meaning that God's plan and provision of our salvation isn't an afterthought. It's not a second thought. It's the primary thought in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament points us forward to who Jesus is. Brian Chapel puts it this way. He said, essential to full understanding the Old Testament ceremonies is realizing they're not primarily about communicating a theological system or a standard liturgy. They are primarily about revealing the person and work of Jesus Christ. In other words, when you read through Genesis through Malachi, we need to read Genesis through Malachi through the lens of discovering what does Genesis through Malachi tell us about Jesus? How does it point toward Jesus? And in this text, it's all about worship. Worship regulations, worship rituals. So I'm going to give you three truths from Hebrews chapter 9 that kind of help us unpack what it means for worship that we see Jesus in our worship. The first truth is this. We need Christ because our worship is imperfect apart from Him. Verse 9 says it this way, According to this arrangement, this old covenant, all the old sacrificial systems, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So all that they did, the, the lambs that they brought, the goats that they brought, the turtle doves, the rituals, the incense that they burned, all of those rituals mattered in the Old Testament as a reflection of their faith in God, but they were not sufficient to bring about the cleansing of one's conscience. They were symbolic. They were pictures. They weren't enough to make sure that the sinners in the Old Testament were forgiven. They needed something better. They needed something more sufficient. And I can prove that to you because if you look back at the Old Testament, what you discover is that the people of Israel were redeemed by God, rescued by God, given the opportunity to worship God, and then what did they do immediately after that? They sinned. They broke God's law. They decided to worship an idol instead of God. They decided to break God's covenant. They did all sort of things over and over again. And the whole story of the Old Testament is God's redemption, their sin, confession, repentance, God's rescue. And you see that cycle over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Points us to the fact that their system itself is insufficient to perfect them from their unrighteousness. The writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about Jesus as a high priest. Verse 11, he's got a greater and more perfect tent. He's bringing us into something that is full, that is formal, that is real, that lasts forever. And he goes on in verse 14 and says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You know what was happening in much Old Testament worship? It was dead works. You see some of the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Amos, many, many others. You know what they would do? They would say, listen, folks, you're doing fine with your Saturday worship. Saturdays, you're bringing your sacrifices. You're bringing your animals. You're worshiping God on Saturday. But Sunday to Friday, you are living as you choose. You're worshiping idols or you're living in in breaking God's covenant. You're disobeying the law. You're living in immorality. Your Saturday worship, the rituals and rites are what God has commanded. But your behavior leading up to that is flawed and sinful and full of failure. And what the writer of Hebrews says, that means that their works were dead works. They were completely insufficient. Luther put it this way. He said that without Christ, one does not serve the living God. Let me make this application for us today. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're celebrating with us. I'm glad that you sang with us. I'm glad that you offer sacrifices of tithes and offerings. I'm glad that you're listening to God's word. But if any of our worship is not filtered through the source who is Jesus and about Jesus, it's nothing but dead works. I know people who are a part of Christian churches and denominations who believe that because they observe regular rituals and practices in worship because they go to Mass, because they attend church on Sunday, because they gave a certain amount in tithes and offerings, because they read the Bible enough that day or enough that week, they believe that those rituals and those experiences will bring them into eternal, right, uh, eternal life with God and will, will form the, the means for which their sins are atoned. Folks, I'm going to tell you, our works don't function that way. And if you're relying on anything besides Jesus to cleanse and forgive you, you're relying on something that the writer here says are dead works. They're insufficient. So if your worship here, like the the practice of our worship, whether it's our private worship at home or our public worship in the congregation of believers, if, if those elements are done for any other reason other than Christ, they're insufficient to perfect us. Only Christ can perfect us. Only Christ can change our hearts. Only Christ can make us right with himself. A second truth that we need to grasp here is that we need Christ because our worship is only possible through him. Now, everybody worships. And people worship all sort of things that are wrong. People in the Old Testament worshiped idols. People today may not bow down to a stone that they create or they cut out. Uh, may, not, may not bow down in, in literal form to an idol. But you know, we have the idols of money and power and pleasure. And the idols of self-absorption and self-centeredness. All sort of things. And all sort of people worship all sort of things in our world. But worship that is real, that is sufficient, that actually matters, can only happen through Jesus can't happen anywhere else. It can't happen through anyone else. It's insufficient to bring glory to the true one who deserves our worship. Notice what the text says, verse 15. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death occurred that redeems from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And he goes on to talk about the covenant and the will and how that's affirmed through Jesus' death and resurrection. And then he goes on to say that in the Old Testament, what took place in order for these to be established is animals had to be shed, had to be killed, and their blood had to be sprinkled. Kind of a grotesque imagery. Where in the Old Testament, you took that animal and you put its blood in a bowl, and the priest every year would take hyssop or take some kind of of brush, and they would shake it on the altar, and they would shake it on the people, and they would shake it on the things to be purified. Man, that's kind of disgusting. Some of you are thinking, man, I'm so glad I'm born in the 21st century. Or maybe born in the 20th century, living in the 21st century. Some of you have been born in the 21st century. But we're glad that we don't have to observe such grotesque type of examples of sacrifice. And some of us may say, well, why in the world then did God command such grotesque sacrifices? He did so because he was pointing towards something that was more perfect than all of those sacrifices. See, if you look in the Old Testament, they had to do those sacrifices daily, weekly, annually. Had to be a regular pattern. And those sacrifices in and of themselves are insufficient to save and redeem. Those sacrifices are only good as to what they pointed toward. They pointed toward a perfect sacrifice. See, the blood of a lamb is not sufficient to wash our sin away, but the blood of the lamb, the lamb of God, who is the perfect lamb of God, is sufficient to wash our sin away. And so what we need to realize is that we need Jesus in order for our worship to even have any level of sufficiency in reality because it's his blood that washes us from our sins. The writer goes on to say, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We need Jesus' blood to wash us and cleanse us from unrighteousness. N.T. Wright describes it this way. He said everything in the Old Testament had to be purified with blood, signifying the purification and pardon that was needed for sinful human beings. There was to be no loophole, no point in the entire system at which anyone could suppose that their worship their buildings, their liturgy, or they themselves could do without the self-giving love of God. No room was left for human pride. Everything had to be dependent on the grace of God. And if that was true in the system of the Old Covenant, which pointed forwards as a signpost to the new one, how much more is it true now that Jesus is embodied in His own life, in His death, His own bloodshed, the loving pardon which God has always longed to give? Christian, we need Jesus in order to worship. Nothing we do, say, give, or respond to is sufficient if it is done, said, and given just merely in our own strength or energy. We need Jesus in order for our worship to be valid and real and received by God. Let me give you a third truth. We need Christ because... Only his act of worship can rescue us from judgment. This is a beautiful truth. We talk so often about the death of Jesus in theological terms, and I believe in us understanding. Uh, our Christian doctrines. While on Wednesday nights we're working through a doctrine and devotion series, and right now we're talking about the doctrine of man. We just finished talking about the doctrine of God, and in the spring we dealt with the doctrine of revelation. It's important for us to grasp those truths. It's important for us to talk about Jesus' death in terms of justification, sanctification, and glorification. And Over the course of the next months, we're going to talk about those things on Wednesday nights. It's important for us to grasp those things theologically. But sometimes I think we talk about the death of Jesus so much theologically that we miss part of what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. Have you ever considered that Jesus' death on the cross was an act of worship? Did you know that Jesus was worshiping on the cross and modeling for us what real worship looks like? William Lane in his commentary Puts it this way the saving event by which Christ secured salvation is described under the symbolism of a liturgical action. Christ offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice to God and entered the heavenly sanctuary to consummate his priestly action in the presence of God. The consequences of his liturgical action is that every obstacle to union with God has been effectively removed. Watch the language that's used here. Jesus, after having died on the cross, stepped into heaven as our high priest, after offering himself as the substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, stepped into heaven... And maybe there are liter- there's a literal altar in heaven in the presence of God. If there's not a literal altar, he stepped into the very presence of God, the Isaiah 6 presence of God and his holiness, which we'll look at next week. The Revelation 4 and 5 presence of God in his holiness is imaged in the book of Revelation. The Daniel 7 presence of God. At the very least, Jesus, after having died on the cross, brought his blood into the heavenly places to stand in front of the holy God, with His own blood and atoned for your sins and my sins. He was the sacrifice. He was acting as the high priest. And by extension, what He's doing, He's serving as our worship leader. Meaning that our very praise and adoration and opening of Scripture and application of Scripture is only made possible by Jesus' act of worship on the cross 2,000 years ago by His act of high priestly intercession that took place after His death on the cross that affords us the privilege and right to be forgiven and to be redeemed. John Calvin describes it this way. He said, Christ turns the Father's eyes to His own righteousness to avert His gaze from our sins. He so reconciles the Father's heart to us by His intercession that He prepares a way and access to us or for us to the Father's throne. Folks, the only way that when we gather and sing, our songs have any effect in eternity or now is because of what Jesus did on the cross. The only way that our giving has any effect that is at any, at any course, anything that matters, is because of what Jesus did on the cross. And so the bottom line, Christian, is this. We have to get to Jesus in our worship service because nothing really happens in our worship services that did not come from the sacrificial, substitutionary, high priestly work of Jesus on the cross. Let me say that again because I was really fast. We must get to Jesus in our worship because nothing, whether it's your private worship or our corporate worship, nothing really happens in worship worthwhile that did not come from the sacrificial, substitutionary, high priestly work of Jesus on the cross and his work in heaven's temple when he stood before God. Nothing happens. I love you. I thank God for you. I am so glad that you're here today. And I'm so glad that many of you come back week after week to celebrate with us and worship. But if our worship is anything less than coming from the source who is Jesus and flowing to Jesus, it is insufficient. Let me give you three applications. First application for us as a church. Because this is true, let me just tell you, we are going to be a church that focuses on Jesus. Jesus. Okay? Our songs are going to be about Jesus. Our, our scriptures are going to be about Jesus, which is easy because all the scripture is about Jesus. He said so. Our sermons are going to be about Jesus. Our invitations are going to be about Jesus. We're just going to be about Jesus. Can I get an amen? Yeah. And if we ever stop being about Jesus here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, you have my permission to go find a church that makes everything they do about Jesus. Okay? Now, Lord help us, that's not going to be us. We're going to make sure that in our songs and in our sermons and in all we do, it uplifts Jesus. It's about Him, it's for Him, and it's from Him. And, and we're going to do our best to make sure that it happens. But if we ever stop, if you ever question that I'm preaching about Jesus or that we're singing about Jesus and He's not the centerpiece of who we are, you come talk to us, you can get mad at us, you can leave and go find someplace else to worship. But as long as we're about Jesus, let me tell you something, regardless of the liturgy and the form and the, and the, and the method of what we do, if we're about Jesus, I promise you, It can help us all, because the only one that can ever help us is Jesus. The truth is what matters. Now, let me make a second application. This is not just for us as a church, it's for us as Christians. We need to remember, folks, that the primary focus in our worship services, both privately in our individual worship and corporately in our gathered worship, is Jesus. He's the starting point, meaning He's the source. And He's also the focus point, meaning He's the only one that really matters if we please Him. doesn't matter whether you're happy. doesn't matter whether I'm happy. matters whether He's, he's happy. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I know some of you aren't happy all the time with what we do and how we operate in our worship services. I get that. I, let me just make a confession to you. I'm not happy with everything we do. I don't like that preacher sometimes and what he has to say and that I have to listen to him. And sometimes he says some things that are true. And if I ever say anything true in the Bible, I have to listen to it too. I know sometimes you'd like it to be a little different. You'd like it to be a little louder and a little faster. Or sometimes you'd like it to be a little slower and maybe a, a little older or a little different. I understand that. And I love you. And I thank God that you have your preferences and your desires. And and you can thank God that I have my preferences and desires. But I'm just going to tell you, as long as it's about Jesus, it can help us. Because the focus is to be about Jesus, not about what you and I like or don't like. If the truth is there, it can be a new song or an old song. It can be a new style or an old style. As long as the truth is there. And we're not trying to be all drastic in what we do. I think y'all can see that. Y'all know that it's about Jesus. If it's about Jesus, folks, we can get the help that we need. I'll give you a third application, a third group that this text applies for. It's for anybody who needs to know Jesus. You should watch this. Verse 24. For Christ has entered not in a holy place is made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf Jesus did all of this you to watch this for us now it should stagger us folks Jesus is worthy of praise and adoration and glory. And let me tell you, we should focus on him. We should praise him. We should glorify him. We should adore him. But he did not do this because he needs some earthly or heavenly pedestal. Jesus has no need in and of himself to be exalted and worshipped and glorified in the sense that he he does all this so that he gets all the credit and glory. He's God. He is perfectly sufficient in and of himself. He's not waiting on us to praise him in order for him to be God. He's God, whether we praise him or not. He did this for your sins and for my sins. He did this because he loves us more than we could ever imagine. He did this because, folks, the only way we'll ever have something that has a chance of lasting forever is if Jesus did something on our behalf. Verse 27 puts it this way, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Why did Jesus go into heaven place places? Why did he go with his blood? Because folks, let me just say this. There's coming a day that every single one of us is going to die. You can't stop it. You might be able to slow it down. Be able to delay it for a few years or a few extra years, but every single one of us will die. And after we die, we will face judgment for our sins. I'm going to promise you this. Every sin on planet Earth will be judged. Every single sin. The Bible is full of affirmations of God's judgment. If you read through the Old Testament and you read through the New Testament, you're going to discover that God judged his people. He judged peoples that weren't his people. He judged the people that judged his people. He judges. He judges all throughout the pages of biblical history. Your sins will be judged. Either they will be judged because they were judged with Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. Or you will stand before God in your unrighteousness and God will judge your sins at the great white throne judgment. And I promise you, if you stand before God then, the judgment for your sins will be eternal separation from a holy God. Jesus went to heaven. Jesus went to heaven with his own blood providing a way for us to be forgiven and redeemed. We think about it in terms of that play right? That biblical storyline. Act 1 is the Old Testament foreshadowing all the work that God was going to do to bring us salvation. Act 2 is the New Testament it's the fulfillment of what God had promised in the Old Testament it's Jesus on the cross, it's the New Testament believers proclaiming Jesus on the cross. Here's the question I have for you where does your story fit in that biblical play? that biblical storyline, where are you going to end up? Are you going to be like a, a comma in human history where your sins get judged and you go to eternal separation from God? Or you're going to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Trust Him as the one who gives us the means to worship and have eternal life questions up to you I'm going I ask if you would to stand as we conclude our worship service this morning Lord God we come to you and we want to thank you for all of the preparation that you did in the Old Testament through your people your chosen people to reflect for us an image and a picture of worship that we so desperately needed Lord God, I thank you for not stopping with the Old Testament covenants, with the Old Testament sacrificial system, and with the Old Testament laws. For Lord, we testify today that those rituals and rites and experiences, while wonderful... While helpful, are not sufficient to perfect us. They're not sufficient to make us holy and make us right. And Lord, if any of us today are standing in our own righteousness, our own rituals, our own goodness, I pray that today would be the day we confess and repent of trying to stand before you in our own righteousness. Lord God, we come to you testifying and thanking you for your son Jesus, who came to offer us the privilege of eternal life who came to take our place, to step in the way of our sinfulness, to be our substitution, to be our sacrifice, to be the one who atoned for our sins, to be our priest, to be our worship leader. Lord, if there's one in the room today who needs to trust you you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would. And Lord, for us as your people, I pray that you would help us remember you're the source and the focus of our worship. And let us faithfully and regularly put our attention on you constantly and always for your glory and for your namesake. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.